The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 17th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll discuss Manchester City star Raheem Sterling's call to end the culture of racism in English soccer. The Ringers' Brian Curtis will also be here to talk about the 25th anniversary of the NFL's TV deal with Fox, a move that changed both the sport and the network in profound ways. And we'll also discuss Steph Curry's doubts about the moon landing, Kyrie Irving's view that the world is flat, and other deep thoughts about the Milky Way from NBA stars. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is the Pleiades to my Hyades, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. It's Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Hyades. <laughs> and also with us today is a guy who hangs the moon, as far as I'm concerned. It's New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham. Welcome back to the show, Vincent. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Stefan, I called Steph Curry, Steph Curry, mm-hmm. just to distinguish him from you. That and was like, wise, I At think. this dark moment at which he's uh, destroying the knowledge base of our nation's children. I just want to make sure that people know. Do I need to go on the record, do you think, saying that I do believe that men have walked on the moon? We'll get to that in our our third segment. But for now... Let's keep them hanging. Let's keep them hanging. Maybe I don't believe Uh, that. I will say that uh, you've still got a few more days, hang up, people, to give us a call for our call-in show. We're going to record it later this week. So um, if you... Listen to this on around December 17th, December 18th, December 19th. You can still call in. Give us a call at 77-HANG-UP-10. Um, call us on a good phone line. Ask us about conundrums. Ask us, uh, we we said last week, advice for the lovelorn is uh, a thing that that you can uh, uh, ask us for in this call-in show. 77-HANG-UP-10. Uh, men and women, we want calls from. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Two Saturdays ago, cameras caught several Chelsea fans screaming at Manchester City forward Raheem Sterling as he approached the stands to retrieve a ball. One of the fans directed what most English media labeled racist abuse at the England national team player. I'm no professional lip reader, but it sure looks like the well-dressed, clean-shaven white gentleman in the royal blue jacket shouts, you fucking black cunt at Sterling. The previous week, a fan of Tottenham threw a banana peel at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang of Arsenal, and a year ago, Sterling was assaulted outside of Manchester City's training ground by a man who called him, you black scouse cunt, and said... I hope your mother and child wake up dead in the morning, you nigger, and then kicked him four times. Oh, and on Sunday, some Chelsea fans did some anti-Semitic chanting on a train after the team's win 
at Brighton. Vincent, racism in European soccer feels a little like guns in American culture. No matter how many <laughs> groups are started and statements made, there's always another one, another shooting, another incident. And I think the question is similar here. Is this a sports problem? Is it a cultural problem or is it just both? Uh, I think that it is both. Um, I, yeah, I, I share this, the, the sentiment of, aren't they tired of, of doing this? I mean, like, if I were a European soccer fan, no matter what sort of malice was hidden in my heart, at this point, I would just want not to be the subject of this kind of story. I mean, and these guys are, you know, obviously, obvious, you know, some sort of cosmopolitans, the guys that were yelling at Raheem Sterling. One guy has on glasses and a trench coat, like you just came from, like, the World Bank or something. Um, so it's just like, you know that this is a thing. I, 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 at this point, I can't understand what it would be unless it, it really is something that is kind of riven through the heart of these sports fans. Given, you know, everything that's going on in the world, I also wonder just, you know, how much, uh, how painful it is to a certain kind of person that so many of these great soccer players uh, are emblematic of uh, the sort of movement of people across that continent that so many people have proven themselves to be uh, scared by, angered by, uh, you name it. Yeah, that's a great point about immigration. And the reason that folks um, in the UK are having this conversation, the reason this particular incident blew up is because Raheem Sterling posted on Instagram um, a heartfelt and extremely incisive um, message in caption. Um, It was a juxtaposition of two screenshots One of them was a story from the Daily Mail from earlier this year, January 2018, the headline of which, and this was about Raheem Sterling, young Manchester City footballer, age 20, on 25,000 pounds a week, splashes out on mansion on market for 2.25 million pounds, despite having never started a Premier League match. So portraying him as somebody who's arrogant, who's loose with his money, who's just like flashy and spending a lot of cash. Um, He contrasts that with a um, screenshot also from the Daily Mail from uh, a story about his teammate, um, young white player, and it says Manchester City starlet Phil Foden buys new two million pound home for his mom. Sterling had also (laughs) bought his home, which was very slightly more expensive for his own mother. And Sterling um, asked the question, what responsibility, what culpability does the British tabloid press have for the attitudes that fans and society at large has towards black athletes? I mean, is it the – and it's not just the tabloid press, frankly. I mean, there are other newspapers in, in Britain that have um, have done the exact same thing. There's a terrific thread, terrific meaning incredibly depressing um, thread that someone in England compiled on Twitter of – of every story that 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 sort of paints Sterling in a racist negative light, and it's a long list. I think it went to like thirty plus tweets, um, and a lot of it is very subtle, microaggressive kind of uh, of coverage. A lot of it is really just flat out racist. I mean, flat out questioning 
this player by <laughs> by some of them are he spends too much, some of them are he spends too little, or some of them are some, he, he's, he went and had breakfast after a loss, or here he is getting into his fancy car, or he's bought too many fancy cars. He went on holiday uh, twice in one week. That was a good one. Um, so yeah, the, it's this kind of <laughs> miasma of like stuff that both the players and the people who follow the sport are just like floating in all the time. And Vincent, like the fact that Sterling um, is contextualizing this recent racial abuse um, with these stories, it implicates everyone. Um, And it's not just about these well-dressed fans. He's basically saying this whole society is racist and this whole society is responsible for the way that players are being talked about and treated. Yeah, there's this kind of idea that in Europe, sort of brute racism, black-white racism is in some way lessened or at least kind of mediated or attenuated by other things like xenophobia, uh, things like that, things that um, are a little bit less overt. But I think what we see here with like Raheem Sterling being able to articulate these things and point to sort of, as you say, like microaggressive or subtler forms of racism is... I think maybe it's fueled by the internet or something like that, a sort of globalizing of techniques, really, of understanding what racism actually is and like how it affects someone on a day-to-day basis, that it's not just being yelled at in a stadium or having a banana peel, like some sort of like cartoon monstrous racism, but it also plays out in these other ways, right? And um, in some ways, like that, that idea that these things didn't exist, just a blunt black-white thing, was just really a paucity of these kinds of interpretive techniques that in America we've had to develop. Right. And I think what's interesting about the way Sterling responded as well is that, you know, historically, Europe has obviously had this legacy of racism and violence and xenophobia running through its football matches and its football culture. Um, And in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of self-congratulations as well. Hey, things are getting better. People aren't killing each other in the stands. The police are much more attentive. We have, you know, squads and, and forces that are out to, to, to control skinheads and other bad elements. It's much safer to go to games than it was in the 1980s and, and early 1990s. And part of this sort of amelioration of the, the problem or the perception of that has been the, the, the rise of anti-discrimination groups, monitoring groups in European football. One in England called Kick It Out reported re- just recently that the number of reported racist incidents across English football went up 22 percent in the 2017 to 2018 season over the previous year. So the question is why? You know, we tend to look at this stuff as these incidents, like you said, Vincent, someone throwing a banana peel or a banana or someone shouting something racist at a player on the sidelines. But it's this sort of underbelly of, 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 of attitude that still exists in the game. And it's fallen on athletes like Raheem Sterling to say something about it. And that to me is, you know, it's great. And it parallels you know, Colin Kaepernick and other efforts in the United States. But at the same time, you get the sense of and the, the saddest part of it is this is the sense of exasperation on yeah. the part of someone like Sterling. It shouldn't be his job to have to educate the public. But of course, it falls on him to do so. He's so young, too. He's uh, 24 years old. Uh, he just turned 24. And, and you guys are both right. I think the thing that's most 
telling here and most worth talking about is the response to Sterling's response rather than kind of the cartoonish um, incidents themselves. Um, You have people like Piers Morgan predictably saying, I want to debate Sterling about this as if this (laughs) this is a subject for debate. And the parallel there for me was um, Adam Jones last year when he talked about hearing a racial slur from the, a fan at Fenway Park and a bag of peanuts was thrown at him and um, there was just all this conversation after Jones said that this had happened to him. Um, Kurt Schilling saying that Jones was lying. Albert Breer um, the MMQB guy saying he'd been to 200 games at Fenway in his life and he'd never witnessed racism. Um, so it's not just the incidents themselves. It's the people in the media. It's influential people in the culture saying you're overreacting. This couldn't have happened the way that you said it happened. You're lying. Um, that Our culture is better. <laughs> right. I'm not ra- made progress. I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Like that to me. <laughs> is the kind of bigger indictment. It's of people who are un- uninterested, unwilling, uncurious, and even like argumentative about the baseline fact that this stuff even happens. Well, it's, I, I think there's a, I mean, as usual with these things, there's a, a fear, I think, that at the bottom it's not about, um, oh, the culture of uh, English soccer or whatever, but that it just so happens that sport culture, the culture of, you know, rooting in stands is a weird sort of id revealing thing that shows you something about the the larger, you know, the larger culture. I mean, it's funny, like the guy who, you know, was yelling at Raheem Sterling, he said, what did he say? He said that, oh, I didn't say black cunt. I said Mark cunt or something like that, as if that's like a thing you say, right? Mank. Mank. Mank cunt, you know? It's like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, This is the only place anywhere that, you know, we basically, you know, encourage people to say the worst thing that they can think of. And it just often turns out that these racial slurs are, are the worst thing that people can think of. And, like, it's in some ways the mark of progress will be when, like, it's all like non-racist awful things that are said in, in that's like the best we can hope for in the stands of places. All of the worst things I have ever heard are like as a fan in a place, you know? I thought you were um, going to say it. You were going to say it would be a mark of progress. And we're just saying awful shit to each other everywhere. So, <laughs> so there's, there's parody. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. If all of our like hidden and worst things that only came out in sports were like <laughs> somehow like racially clean, at least it's like, wait, but, cunt is not nice either, man. Like what kind of excuse is that? You know, it's like just such a weird place. I guess they encourage you to yell at soul cycle, but I can't think of another place where they're just like, let it all out. You know, you're like a bad fan. If you're not thinking of like inventive, uh, insults and things. So just a strange context. I just remembered another example, which was the LeBron, LeBron getting the N word painted on his gate and Brentwood and Clay Travis being like, that didn't happen. And like Clay Travis, just like going on this, like, you know, search for, uh, you know, evidence to, to prove that LeBron, you know, there was this assumption that he was lying because obviously that's a thing that you would lie about. But another right. example from American sports from the last couple of weeks, this video came out of Leonard Fournette, the former LSU and now Jacksonville Jaguars running back, yelling at a fan in the stands that 
um, he was going to beat the fan's ass. And then it came out later that Fournette said that the fan had been yelling racial slurs at him all game. Right. A teammate of his, TJ Yeldon, said that he had heard it. And then there was a line in the piece uh, on ESPN that I found extremely telling that I don't think uh, a lot of people noticed. The line was, Fournette declined to address the matter in the locker room on the advice of his agent. Um, and that, again, points out that Raheem Sterling, him speaking out about this, Adam Jones speaking out about it, too. Just think about all the players who have stuff happen to them, whether it's stuff be- being yelled at, whether it's things that they read about them in comment sections on Twitter, whatever, who just don't say anything. Because what's the ben- what's the benefit to um, an athlete of saying, I was racially abused. I mean, you might get some sympathy from from your home team fans or from, um, you know, people online or whatever, but you're also just going to draw a huge amount of um, attention to yourself in a a negative way too. And why put yourself in in the middle of that? Well, and you're also worn down by a lifetime of this. I mean, you know, go all the way back to Jackie Robinson and what he had to endure. And obviously the context is different, but in a lot of ways, the context isn't different. There's still racists in the stands screaming bigoted shit at athletes. Um, And the other part of Sterling's Instagram post that was interesting was his reaction in the moment. And he says that, as you can see by my reaction, I just had to laugh because I don't expect no better. You know, they're, yeah. in, they're inured to this. And that's the saddest part of all. I mean, it, 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 it's not as if black soccer players haven't been in the Premier League. You know, they didn't just get there. It's been decades. Yeah. Um, and, and before yet, they you know, were, you know, before Raheem Sterling was young enough that before he got there and had this happen to him, you know, he's been a soccer fan as a kid. He's seen his heroes have this happen to them, right. you know? So he was used to it before he even experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Two quick things before we wrap this up. Um, also just back to the Adam Jones incident. One of the more telling things there was that CC Sabathia, um, black, uh, pitcher most recently for the Yankees said, um, that it's, it's talked about among black major leaguers. We know there's 62 of us. Like he knows the exact number of black major leaguers at that point. There's 62 of us. We all know. And he was talking about Boston specifically. When you go to Boston, you expect it. You expect to hear racial slurs. Um, and then so there's this this community, this brotherhood of black athletes and, and baseball and, and soccer as well. Those folks know um, what it's like to experience this, and it's sort of similar to um, to the Kaepernick protest, where you had some white players, whether it's Chris Long or others, who have had solidarity to to black players. You have others who are just like, I haven't heard this. This hasn't happened to me. Again, just this like assumption that people are lying. <laughs> about their experiences, like why you would have that assumption. Um, I, I mean, I guess I do now, but um, it's, it's pretty harmful to have that assumption. And then the final thing that I would say is there was a, a good piece that you sent around, Stefan, by this guy Peter Staunton writing for Goal about as a, um, a journalist in England hearing racist chants on trains and things like that and saying nothing, and he blames himself for not stepping up or, or saying anything. Um, and then that reminded me of 
um, this this piece in, in Deadspin that highlighted something that the writer John Gonzalez had had written um, about racism in Boston in a piece in Boston Magazine. He quoted a guy who said, if you want to improve race relations, don't go around simply saying you're not racist. And that's what so many um, white athletes, coaches, and media members say that there's a defensiveness. Like the initial reaction is just, I'm not racist, rather than saying, what can I do about this? How can I speak out against this? Similarly, there was a column by a guy named Jonathan Liu in the uh, Independent in England, and, and it raised sort of those points. It's sort of there's like this this coming to Jesus moment for I think a lot of white writers who cover this sport um, and possibly other sports. Um, but he talked about how yeah you'll hear a lot about Raheem Sterling or or the banana peel thrown at uh, Obama Yang, but he writes you probably didn't hear about the Premier League manager who once confided his opinion that black players quote belong in trees end quote or the former manager who casually dropped the word quote chinky into a briefing with a national with national newspaper journalists, um, and he went on and there's this sort of now public airing of 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 similar incidents, quiet incidents, off the record incidents, and this the, this recognition that oh, I should do something about it, whether it's writing about it or confronting a fan or a manager in that situation. The other thing that I think we haven't um, addressed is the role of these current times in either drawing attention to or encouraging or permitting these kinds of incidents, whether it's what we've seen in in America with the rise of, of reported raci- racist incidents during the Trump administration and in England with the rise of anti-immigrant groups in a bunch of countries. I do think that the times have like, it, it's interesting given a different kind of mirror or prism or what, whichever sort of reflective item. Um, I don't know if you guys remember a couple months back, I was thinking about this in Paris, there was this guy who like saved a baby uh, right. by like jumping up the, the, like the balconies. It was this incredible, like weird display of like, uh, athleticism. And he was like, Oh, Paris is Spider-Man. And, you know, and then of course, like the next day it came, you know, it came out that he was, you know, a refugee, uh, for, I can't remember which country. And it just became a way to talk about immigration in this time of incredible xenophobia, which was kind of sparked in part by, by migration patterns and things like that. And so I think that frame does clarify a lot of this and give, uh, and gives, I think, like you said, these, these white writers who have kind of written around this, uh, a chance, but also kind of a, a mandate to, to think about it in a different way. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In our next segment, we're going to talk with Brian Curtis about Fox's 25-year relationship with the NFL. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to continue that conversation. So if you like our uh, chat with Brian, stick around. We'll have more about Fox, about broadcasting, 
uh, and about the business of the NFL and television. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Last week, the Ringer's Brian Curtis published an excellent feature story, the subtitle of which will serve as a great introduction to the topic and will also save me the time of having to write an introduction myself, which I'm extremely thankful for. It reads, an oral history of the most important deal in sports TV history when Rupert Murdoch and Fox stole the NFL and John Madden out from under the big three networks, created the modern pregame show, invented a new way to see football, and launched a television empire. Joining us now to discuss is Brian Curtis, who's editor-at-large for The Ringer and the co-host of the Press Box podcast. Thank you for writing your own introduction, Brian. What a subheadline. I mean, really. <laughs> it was crafted. Annals of subheads. Um you laid out the facts of the case so well in that uh, subhead, but a little bit more detail is that in December of 93, uh, Murdoch paid $1.6 billion over four years to win the rights to broadcast NFC football games, outbidding CBS by about $100 million per year. As you note in your piece, Fox was not really a true broadcast network back then. And so this was its play not only to get legitimacy, but also basically to exist on the same plane as CBS, NBC, and ABC. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, any child of the 90s will remember, and this is in my particular case where we didn't have cable, there were the two dials on your television. One was VHF and one was UHF. And in my case, growing up at Dallas-Fort Worth, I had to literally turn the UHF dial to channel 33, <laughs> at which point I could find an extremely grainy picture of Fox. And, you know, that was, they were on channel 50 in Detroit and, you know, a high number in Atlanta. And they really, in those days before streaming and Apple TV and everything, you were only as good as your affiliates. And Fox just didn't exist for most people. One of the funny things here was like, some of the people they hired, Terry Bradshaw and Matt Millen, after they got the rights, they had never heard of Fox. <laughs> and a couple months later, they were working for Fox. Um, so, yeah, and it's like well, the one thing Rupert Burdock wanted to do was to be a real network. And when he bought this, when he paid this gigantic sum, that effectively it switched a bunch of those affiliates. It put people's eyeballs on Fox, and it made them into a real thing. The amazing part of the story, or at least one of the many amazing parts of Fox's acquisition of the NFL, is that this is a bunch of Australians who looked at the American television market and recognized that the way to create a television network that could compete with this, this hegemony, with this cartel of the three big networks, was through this sport that they didn't understand in the least. I mean, David Hill, who who ended up orchestrating this deal, really, he didn't get football at all, did he? No, no. The joke was he didn't know if there were feathers inside of football or air inside of football. And that's probably not totally inaccurate. <laughs> he didn't know, and he has this great line in the piece where he says, I wasn't a sports producer, I was a television producer. So I could sort of hire people from CBS and elsewhere that helped me understand, like, okay, you know, Troy Aikman is an important quarterback. John Elway is an important guy. We should, we should pay attention to them. But really, you were just completely conceiving it, you know, with, with fresh eyes and sort of looking at it and saying, you know, okay, well, if, if I don't understand this, what would be interesting? Well, we need a kind of wacky pregame show. Well, we need, you know, sound effects. A couple of years later, we need a giant robot named Cletus who's going to, you know, kind of get the, you know, become a weird sort of mascot of Fox. And, you know, that's all him. And as you say, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's kind of Australian in flavor. It really is. 
And uh, and that was, you know, a particular a peculiarity of Murdoch. And I think the NFL was sort of terrified at the beginning at a low level. And certainly journalists who covered this stuff were pretty terrified of what these guys would do. And then they turned it on and they're like, oh, you know, it looks like football and it's slightly more interesting around the margin. So this seems okay. I guess I should say that I read your piece as like, I, this is, I guess it's my just obsession with the politics of the moment, but I read your piece in the same way that I kind of read all of the uh, obituaries and eulogies to George H.W. Bush, like the sort of, <laughs> the, like the passing of a certain kind of establishment and the kind of like barbarians at the gate. Um, and I just wondered, like, as you were talking to all these people, especially Fox, now that they have like run this model that they invented, as you say, like into the ground, where was there a sort of, I don't know, elegiac feeling among these people? Or do, do they kind of feel that their model is still something that works today? Or in their kind of reverie about the past, where they was there some kind of restlessness, you know, about the future? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think they look at that moment in 93 as the last time anything that big could be created in American life, right, that would have right. that many eyeballs on it. I mean, just think now if, like, you know, one of these streaming companies like DAZN or you know, Facebook or Amazon or whomever buys NFL rights, you know, that'd be a big deal and that'd certainly make them big, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't sort of capture everybody in that old media 1993 way. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I do think there's a little bit of a, you know, in some of those people that I was talking to, a little bit of sadness that, you know, you couldn't kind of create something exactly like that from, from scratch now and be literally one of four things that are in front of people's eyeballs. Yeah, the paradox here for me is that in some ways you can frame this moment as incredibly revolutionary, both for the NFL, for sports broadcasting. I mean, there are so many innovations that you talk about that we can get into, like the on-screen score bug, the way that they um, mic'd the field, the use of, of more cameras. Um, and yet, in some ways there's just such a feeling of status quo-ness about what they're doing. Like the people that you talk to in the first half of the piece that work for CBS just all leave and go to work for Fox. Yeah, it's like exactly. the same people, <laughs> this literal same set of people that are making the games. And then when they hire broadcasters, they bring over John Madden and Pat Summerall, who are like the voices of our childhood from, from CBS. They become the voices of Fox. And then these like new kind of young up-and-coming announcers that they hire are all sons of famous announcers. I mean, there's like nothing more, just like the nepotism there is off the charts. Like no matter what you think of Joe Buck and Kenny Albert and Tom Brenneman, it's like certainly like people without those last names could have been given an opportunity and maybe could have done a good job too. So like looking at all this stuff in aggregate, does the like revolutionary aspect or the kind of status quo-ness of it more stick out to you? It's a fascinating question. I mean, I think a couple of, couple of things I'd say to that. One is that, remember, they're getting the NFL, and they are, once, you, once you go into business with the NFL, you become a custodian of the league yeah. and of the tradition. You are in a business relationship with these guys. So if Paul Tagliabue calls you and gets really mad at something you're doing, and that's, by the way, the same thing for Roger Goodell today, you're, you're in a bad place. You, that just can't happen. So at the same time that they're trying to be sort of wacky and, and different and strange, they're really trying to, you know, say, oh, we're going to hire John Madden, who had already been created a long time ago. And he's football. Pat Summerall, who must be the most un-Fox guy ever hired by the Fox Network. 
is going to come on and do his, you know, big voice spare Pat Summerall thing. And I think, you know, talking to Vincent here, the chronicler of Stephen A. Smith or, you know, Joe <laughs> Tessitore, I think you realize why when those guys get such a reaction that they do, because the aesthetic of everybody else is drawn within these really narrow lines, right? And somebody comes along and they're different at all in whatever way, and people are just losing their minds, right? Oh my gosh, this is this can't be. This is this is transgressive. But really, you know, sports TV again, it's after the biggest possible audience, so they don't want to they don't want to make anybody mad. I started covering this, the the networks and the sports packages. Uh, around the time of Fox's second contract. So not the original one, but the second one. Um, and what always leapt out at me and leaps out at me again after reading your history, Brian, is that this wasn't so much revolutionary as a production um, exercise. It was revolutionary as a business exercise on a lot mm-hmm. of levels. I mean, the NFL recognized that having more bidders for your product than you actually had product to sell was a great thing. This was the first time that Go the figure. league was able to <laughs> leverage this outsider to ramp up its prices. Yeah, go figure. And then on the part on the side of the networks, there was this tremendous miscalculation initially that we can't pay this much. This is crazy. It will we will lose money. This stop being about the NFL. It was about what it should have been about for them was stopping this competitor from entering your marketplace, and they didn't recognize that. And then finally, the thing that completely reshaped the business of the sports sports and the networks was the amount of money that they did end up paying in those first three contracts. Um, NBC, mm-hmm. 10 years after this, wound up exiting all of the major sports leagues, you know, proclaiming that we were doing the right thing, we can't sustain these losses, it's a it's a joke that the leagues are, are putting us out of business. And what happened to them? They recognized, you know, a few years later that we need this to promote other programming and support the rest of our network. Totally right. I mean, the, the business side of this is, is pretty staggering. It's like one thing I've really sort of glancingly alluded to is that in around 1992, Art Modell, who is already the pre-notorious Art Modell, but he's sort of the, you know, owner of the Browns and sort of the get-along old-school kind of owner, he heard the networks crying about how much money they were losing, and he went to them and said, here's the deal. We'll extend your guys' old deal, which is to say their less lucrative deal, by two years, and we'll give you a pay cut. Yep. So if you guys give us two more years, we'll actually lower the rights fees. <laughs> like the only time in history this has ever happened anywhere, right? And, you know, Jerry Jones and Pat Bolin, it's not like those guys – you know, understood exactly that Fox was going to come in and completely change their life financially. They were just like, no, that is a dumb idea. It is a dumb idea to take a pay cut. We are not doing this. We'd rather take our chances, you know, with everybody at the table. And I think the funny coda, and this goes to when you started writing about this stuff, is that, you know, CBS said absolutely not, no way in hell to $400 million for the better NFC package. And four, four years, years later, later, they paid 500 for the crappier AFC package, which they're still in on. <laughs> so, you know, again, they, that's why when everybody says, oh, you know, some, oh, they're not going to show football anymore. ESPN's going to get out of Monday night, or this is just too much. I just always say, I'll believe it when I see it, when they walk away from football. I'll just believe it, because as we've seen, and as you see with CBS here, it always has a weird effect on your whole network. One of the subtexts of your entire, can I call it an oeuvre? Uh, Brian, do you have an oeuvre? Um, <laughs> a very nice word for it, but yes, 
Yeah, I think, but when I read all of your pieces, I think it, it uh, the subtext of a lot of them is like, okay, how long can that last, right? Like, um, and what is it going to be? Whether it's, as we've been talking about, sort of business incentives with the sort of change in the way people watch things, um, random aesthetic preferences of people who are highly distracted. Like, what is it going to be that tips those scales? And maybe this is a broader question for you, but have you, I mean, in all of your work, and this especially, but have you seen the kind of the sprouts of that? Or are we in for more sort of Joe Buckish individuals? I just, I think if anything, I've seen the opposite of it, which is this sort of gilded, you know, very sort of careful within the lines, color within the lines, uh, age of broadcasting has just kind of continued way beyond what I thought it would. I mean, the funniest thing about doing this, uh, about constructing this oeuvre, as you're so nice to call it, is that not only are people calling games exactly like they did when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, it is often the same people calling the games. That were, that were <laughs> or their children. Game. Or their children. Yeah, or their children. But it's like, you know, Al Michaels and all, these were the big stars of broadcasting, and they're doing exactly the same thing. There's not really, you know, another place on television. You know, Johnny Carson's gone, right? Even Jay Leno's gone, and, and you know, <laughs> The people, Dan Rather's gone and Tom Brokaw, right? They owe something more to that vision of network television, you know, of, of yore. And, and I just think, you know, there's so much. I think the thing that has really made it, to your point, the same and has not stopped those new uh, things from sprouting is the fact that it has, football has retained more of its audience than anything else on network television, right? We had this little freak out about the NFL ratings last year, but obviously they're losing audience at a much slower rate than like sitcoms are or dramas. So, you know, all those are the network news, certainly. So all those other things, you sort of sit there and say, how can we rip this up? How can we start a new? How can we appeal to a different audience? And with football, I think at some point the, the producers and the people who run the networks go, we shouldn't change anything. Because this is the one thing that still has an audience in 2018. Right. And, and where the changes have occurred are, again, on the business side. It's sort of the model is the same. But then look inside the NFL, too. You mentioned Art Modell, old line owner, willing to give money back to the networks, where the Aravist owners like Jerry Jones, who had leveraged themselves to the hilt to buy these teams – said, fuck that. We want as much revenue as we can squeeze out. And there was a tremendous tension underlying all of this in the 90s into the mid to late 2000s between the older owners in the NFL and the smaller uh, and the newer owners in the NFL and also large market versus or big revenue versus smaller revenue teams in the NFL. And the visionaries like Jerry Jones, and he was a visionary. I mean, he went after his fellow owners over what you could sign up as a sponsor and in your stadium and whether you could pour Coke if the national deal was Pepsi or vice versa. I can't remember which it was. So there was this, you know, all the tension is within the cabal and the networks realize like we got to satisfy these people. So let's not. Let's not, you know, turn over the card here in terms of how we do our business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's funny because when we, Jerry Jones and I grew up as a Cowboys fan, so I'm a Cowboys fan. 
just what's so interesting about him as Togner for this piece is he was like, you know, part of this is, is, is visionary and having new ideas and fresh ideas and shaking it up, but part of this was he had just leveraged himself to the hilt to buy right. the Dallas Cowboys in 1989, which is four years before this deal. He spent more money to buy the Cowboys than anybody had spent to, to buy a sports team in history. And his thinking was, I just need money. Right. <laughs> I, you know, part of this is I have some new ideas that's going to revolutionize. You know, part of it is like, look, I just need money. I can't take the pay cut money. <laughs> I need more money. And Pat Bowen was the same way. Again, I think he brought the Broncos in 1984. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not the Mara family and the Rooney family and these guys who essentially have just been sitting on NFL franchises since they were worth like 10 cents. And, you know, we're happy to sort of go along. And you're right, that is the tension. And it was the tension that, you know, that really led to this whole Fox deal happening in the first place. Brian Curtis is editor-at-large for The Ringer. He's co-host of the Press Box podcast. We're going to continue this conversation in our bonus segment for Slate Plus. So stick around for that. Uh, Brian, thank you. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On December 10th, the Golden State Warriors' Andre Iguodala and Steph Curry went on the show Winging It, which is a new podcast from The Ringer featuring players Kent Bazemore and Vince Carter, hosted by Annie Finberg. Uh, Eventually, they got around to talking about dinosaurs, as one does on a podcast. We haven't gotten to the point on this episode where we talk about dinosaurs, but I assume we're going to get there at some point. Um, They then transitioned from dinosaurs to some moon chatter, In the clip we're about to play, Curry is the one who asks, we ever been to the moon? He then adds, I don't think so, before saying he doesn't want to start conspiracies, which is a little bit late to be making that point. Uh, Let's listen to the full clip. No, somebody said, you know, those memes with somebody smoking. Somebody said, wait, how do you know what sound a dinosaur has made in these movies? I said, damn. (laughs) How do they know what sound a dinosaur has made? Somebody mm-hmm. could actually like transcribe what the sound sound like, and they just uh, on a cable go or walk, it. yeah, somewhere like you I can't tell because we don't know. I, I have, I have to a bone anything. don't tell you a bone don't tell you what the sound is, right? Right. We ever been to the moon? Nope. Nope. They gonna come get us? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm conspiracy. Sorry, I don't start the conspiracy. They ain't been on the moon. You don't think so? Mm-mm. I wanted to play that whole. Thing, just to give more of a sense of the like dorm room uh, bullshittery, uh, the the nature of the conversation. So after this clip went out into the world, a NASA spokesman offered to give Curry a tour of the Johnson Space Center and sh- as well as show him a bunch of moon rocks. Uh, the Sacramento Kings trolled Curry with moon landing footage during player intros. Curry later told ESPN that he'd been joking and that he was going to take NASA up on its offer for the tour of the Space Center. Vincent, was Steph Curry joking? Uh, you know what? I don't think so. When I heard it, when I heard that it had happened, when I read that it had happened, I guess I should say, I thought, no, he's either kind of trolling or, um, as some people have said, you know, jealously going after the sort of conspiracy theory market after Kyrie first entered it. Um, 
But listening to it, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that when we hear athletes do these conspiracy theories, it's just a way to remind us that like a lot of people believe a lot of weird stuff. And athletes and, have a lot of time on their hands too. Yeah, he's been playing basketball his whole life and just talking to his friends in settings like this. You know, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I've had my hair cut by a guy that tried to tell me about the Illuminati. Like, I, I, I don't know. It, this, this is how people are. So I think he kind of meant it. And I think he quickly realized that that was not a majority opinion and uh, <laughs> had, had to switch it up. He quickly realized that it was not yeah. a majority opinion. I mean, I mean, uh, the, you know, the, the conspiracy about the conspiracy about whether he was just trolling Kyrie is fun in a very oh my God, the NBA is so entertaining sort of way. Kyrie Irving, who said last year that the earth is flat. And walked it back eventually. It took him a while to walk it back. On, yeah, we're going to play on, a clip from that in a, in, a, in a minute. But yeah. Go ahead. Um, I think we want to believe that Curry said that he believes that we didn't go to the moon as part of this broader NBA fun narrative, like, oh, it's so wacky and the players are sort of subtweeting each other in real life all the time. Yeah, Nathaniel Friedman had a Twitter thread in which he said, Curry is a basketball genius, but carbon copying the god Kyrie like that is more proof that he is a total lame. Kyrie is supposed to be a weirdo. Flat Earth was on brand. So Steph, I mean, maybe it's partly because of the like, under Armour shoes, which he got like kitted about some, which were <laughs> fairly basic um, with his, you know, wife's uh, cooking show. And he always just seems like it's pretty like staid guy doesn't want to say the wrong thing. Um, and so that's what Nathaniel Friedman is talking about there, that this just seems like a totally um, like not staff moment it seems like maybe he's trying too hard but i think you're right vincent and that like this is just a guy who's like watched a lot of videos on youtube and as hey. we've as we've read about and as i think we've seen in personal experience when you watch like one youtube video it'll suggest like 12 more vi youtube videos to okay. you about how uh the moon landing was a hoax or how the Earth is flat. And you just go down the rabbit hole, and you start to to believe it. And I I think that it can happen to anyone. I don't think uh, just yeah. because uh, you know you're uh, you don't have to be Kyrie Irving to to believe uh, in stuff you watch on YouTube. Yeah, like speaking of like YouTube and its trajectories, I think we should just all be happy that like flat Earth stuff and. The moon landing is the farthest we've seen an NBA player go. Like, I mean, there's a an alternate reality in which uh, Steph Curry is saying this to like Jordan Peterson, right? Like, I was going to uh, ask, do you think that Jordan Peterson is popular in NBA locker rooms? I bet you he is. I bet you that. I mean, who was it? Oh gosh, Pete Carroll is brought like a, him into the Seahawks to talk. Yeah. I mean, he's telling people to like you know stand up straight and like clean their rooms and stuff. I'm sure like. There is a, a a world in which, you know, a lot of players are watching that stuff and worse. So, like, as long as nobody's, like, bringing up Quillette articles, I think we should be happy. <laughs> Let's listen to Kyrie Irving. So this was what Stefan was alluding to before. This was at Forbes's Under 30 Summit, an onstage interview in which Kyrie is asked, just level with us, man. 
uh, was the flat earth thing. Did you actually believe that? What's the deal? And here was his response. At the time, I was like huge into conspiracies. Everybody's been there. <laughs> Everybody's been there like, yo, what's going on with our world? You know, like you click a YouTube click and it goes like how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's like, yo, you start telling all your friends like, yo, did you see that? Did you watch this video? I'm telling you. And, it was, and at the time it was like, I, you know, you're like innocent in it, but you realize the effect of, of the power of voice. And, and even if you believe in that, it's like, you just you're like, well, don't come out and say that stuff. That's for intimate conversations because perception, how you're received, it just changes. Like, no, I'm actually a smart-ass individual. Like, no, I just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so it's not like... It's not like That's I was just coming out and saying that. So it was like, at the time, just didn't realize the effect. And right. I was definitely, at that time, like, I'm a big conspiracy theorist. You right. can't tell me anything. Right. So, yeah, I'm sorry about all that, you know, for all the <laughs> science teachers, everybody coming up to me like, you know, I got to reteach my whole curriculum. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I was unintentionally copying Kyrie when I when I referred to the YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah, I love the idea that like uh, that conspiracy theories are for intimate conversations. It's like <laughs> even if you believe that, it's like this is like you know bedroom talk. Well, I mean, that, that whole soliloquy kind of um, demonstrates the way that athletes are trained to handle their their statements in public. You know, I, I can believe that the 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 earth is flat or that we made up the, the the moon landing was a hoax but i just don't want i just can't say it publicly i mean i have to i have to monitor everything i say how about maybe like i was not a smart ass person i was a dumb ass person for going down that rabbit hole and believing any of this shit and not reading a fucking book about going to the moon well there is there are like some there are some serious uh, points to be made in this ridiculous conversation. I think one of them is that it's important it's not only important for people to understand that the earth isn't flat. It's important to understand that smart people can believe dumb shit. And I think Kyrie is right in saying I think Kyrie Irving is a smart person and I think like the internet and YouTube um in particular as a delivery system for information can be incredibly damaging and dangerous. I mean, you hear about it um, with people believing stuff about vaccines causing autism. And, you know, Vincent was alluding to this before. There's some um, pretty nefarious and dark shit that you can get into if you start looking at YouTube and the algorithm is like feeding you this this information. And so I think it's important for us not to say, oh, Kyrie Irving believes this because he's an idiot. It's like you can um, be smart and still be susceptible to falling for this stuff. The other point I would make is that Kyrie Irving made his statement about the earth being flat on a podcast uh, called Road Trippin' with RJ and Channing that featured Richard Jefferson, Channing Fry, and the host, Ali Clifton, the exact same format podcast that wow. Steph Curry revealed his moon landing. So maybe it's the two on. basketball players plus a, a, a woman host. That, I think. <laughs> that's the, I, that's I, the intimate I, setting in which your true beliefs <laughs> that's right. lie. Both Kyrie and Steph were duped into <laughs> thinking this was an intimate setting. As, so, as someone who confuses correlation and causation, I definitely think that being on one of these podcasts causes you to believe in uh, conspiracy So, Vincent, theories. you're going to tell us right now that, of course, you believed in Pizzagate because you're on a podcast with two other people. I've got some things. Where's the woman host? No I'm woman just, host, just, though, yeah. <laughs> There's a phantom waiting. woman host, Vincent. What do you believe? Yeah. 
So, uh, race science. No, I, I don't. I don't have anything to say, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, looking at the wiki page for moon landing conspiracy theories, looks like it started around 1976, and then in a perfect harmonic convergence of Kyrie Irving and Steph Curry's non-beliefs. In 1980, the Flat Earth Society accused NASA of faking the landings. There we go. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. They argued that the landings were staged by Hollywood with Walt Disney sponsorship (laughs) based on a script by Arthur C. Clarke and directed by Stanley Kubrick. They actually talked about the Stanley Kubrick thing on the podcast. They did? Yeah, that that was one of the, the theories. Uh, wow, it's good stuff. But yeah, I thought the Kyrie's note at the end, it's like a, it's like a very funny twist on the like perennial like debate about whether athletes are role models or not. And just like the real, <laughs> the realization that like any dumb shit you say has a real kids, world effect. It's true that the kids out there are going to believe it or that people will, um, become hoax curious if you talk about this stuff like players have to be aware of this stuff and conscious of it that the loose kind of podcast format can be dangerous like uh it can it can cause uh children to go down the wrong path yeah <laughs> who took the some kid in a picture anyway <laughs> so it was a selfie Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. We mentioned uh, Stanley Kubrick and the moon landing uh, hoax just now. I just went on a very long quest Googling Stanley Kubrick and sports to well, see if Stanley down, Kubrick you had a, you rabbit hole. I rabbit holed to see if Stanley Kubrick had <laughs> anything to do with sports. Came up empty until I found a st- story on the website 2001 uh, Italia.it. I'm assuming this is a reliable source because uh, you know everything on the internet is true. Uh, this post is titled "History in the Making: Kubrick and the 1966 World Cup." Stanley Kubrick had to overcome several obstacles in order to get his space vision right in 2001, but who would have thought that one of one such annoyance was the 1966 World Cup final itself? That was the one that England won, right, Stefan? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. So it's talking about Though these... some think that that may have been a hoax as well. <laughs> <Good one. laughs> so they're talking about filming this uh, big uh, and and time consuming effects shot. Checking the dailies, a particularly shaky movement of the space station showed up on screen. They looked at the log sheets and found that it was from July 30th, 1966. Um, and what happened on July 30th, 1966? 10 miles away from MGM Borumwood Studios, England and West Germany took the field to play the World Cup final in Wembley. The greatest moment in English football history happened during the shooting of one of the greatest movies ever. This is from page 178 and 179 of 
uh, the making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Kubrick now remembered that many of his staffers hadn't been willing to work that day unless they could wheel a TV set into the shooting studio and look at it from time to time. In the same instant, they'd all leaped up to applaud England's winning goal. Meanwhile, on its reinforced shooting stage, the space station had been turning gently for three hours while the camera snapped doggedly away at six seconds per frame for 1,500 frames, enough to generate about a minute's worth of footage. And for three frames, somewhere about halfway, the studio floor had shaken. Stanley Kubrick and sports, we found it. Uh, should Should we call them Stanley Kubricks? Should we call them shaking space stations? How about shaking space stations? Let's do that. All right, Vincent, what do you, what's uh, your shaking space station for us this week? My shaking space station is my utter fatigue with the modern NBA. Uh, I don't mean that I'm annoyed by the proliferation of three-pointers, the increased pace of the game, any of the trappings that actually make uh, basketball, professional basketball, what it is today. I love all of those things. What I'm tired of is the phrase, the modern NBA. Um, It makes us stupider in every single sense. And I think it makes us like kind of stop looking at the game for what it is. Um, People who like the NBA, sometimes the entirety of their analysis is that a certain team, let's call it this year, it's been the Kings. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but all people say is the Kings finally started playing, you know, modern basketball. They've joined the modern NBA. Um, when the real truth is that they just got an awesome player who got, again, better in De'Aaron Fox, right? Um, And then the people who dislike the way the game is played now just have some kind of, you know, a tagline that the modern NBA is less less beautiful than uh, the the NBA of of, of prior years. You know, I think famously this year, it's Greg Popovich who was kind of uh, reigning on the sort of uh, the idea of the modern NBA and all of the three-pointers and he's hated it forever and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, no, the real truth is that you just lost one of the best five players in the NBA. It has nothing to do with the modern NBA as such. Um, and then I think it, it, it helped, it, it makes us not able to see great players, you know, uh, because of the way people have been sort of cramped into this idea of what the game is. Uh, they can't, uh, even appreciate somebody like Ben Simmons, who I just think is one of the greatest people we've ever seen. I think uh, Ben Dietrich has been really good about this on Twitter, just pointing out all the times that people are always talking about the deficits of this player um, and deficits only as measured against this, like sort mostly fictitious ideal when it's like the guy's awesome. Watch him. He will make you happy. If you like basketball, that's what we're here for. Uh, not to, you know, put other things in a spreadsheet that tells you how he could be, you know, X percent better. Um, and then also it makes us not able to see when people are like truly bad, all of the, uh, all the sort of funereal talk about Carmelo Anthony has talked about how he's like left behind by the modern NBA when like Rudy Gay still plays. Okay. The reason that Carmelo Anthony has gone is because he doesn't want to play defense and never has. And now he's slower than he's ever been. So I think it makes us stupid. Stefan sent a great piece that sort of the first time that this was this was said, whatever this 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 phrase in this way, uh, the St. Louis Dispatch uh, in 1989, I believe, and uh, back then in 1989, this this sort of concept of the modern NBA, this piece was a survey of all the sort of uh, 
coaches losing sort of control of their teams. And it says, you know, the coach has to get along with the star. This is a necessity in the modern NBA where a great deal of the attention and fan appeal is on the players as individuals and personalities. And it's strange. Like, we still talk about that. We still say that, that that's like a, a modern thing that LeBron is like metastas, like is, is sort of taken in as a star in his own right, as opposed to the team. It just like, it freezes us in place. And when there's this, you know, there's this great game to watch, uh, modern, prehistoric, ancient, it's a great game. The NBA stands on its own. It does not need this weird qualifier. Let's just watch the games. Can't believe this uh, NBA where people care about watching the players. It's not like that's not like my old timey NBA. I like to call it the ancient <laughs> NBA. Yeah, back. I just looked at the colors fly by. <laughs> it, there's so, so much, so much bad analysis flies under this flag. Uh, here, here. Stefan, what is your shaking space station? The Penn men's basketball team defeated defending NCAA champion Villanova 78 to 75 at the Palestra in Philly last week. I watched on ESPN. It was spectacular. First time Penn had beaten Nova in 16 years. Nova's first loss after 25 straight wins in the Big Five. The Big Five, Penn, Nova, St. Joe's, LaSalle Temple. Penn is 9-2, and two, and I predict we'll get some top 25 votes. Go Quakers. After the game, I was DMing with former hang-up and listen intern Max Cohen, who's a sophomore at Penn now. He sent me a story from the paper about how the Quakers are so gritty that after every practice, Coach Steve Donahue awards a black metal lunch pail with a box of Quaker brand grits inside to the player who worked the hardest that day. It was all about putting in the work, and I thought the lunch pail was a great symbol of that, Donahue says in the story. Penn is indeed a disciplined team because you know they didn't out-athlete Villanova. And while the Stanley lunch pail emblazoned with stickers spelling out Penn and the very idea of grit are a gigantic cliche, the whole thing works. The Quakers, at least before the season, were totally into competing for the lunch pail, lobbying coaches to award them the lunch pail, posting pictures on social media of them with the lunch pail. That's because team props, totems, and free shit are sure ways of getting players to work harder, feel better about themselves, and bond. I've mentioned on this show Power Bar, the longtime mascot of my girls' soccer team, The Power, a Barbie dressed in our team uniform that a girl received after every practice and game, which she then would decorate. A slightly more famous example of the team totem is the University of Miami football team's turnover chain. The turnover chain, which Josh has well-documented here, debuted last year and was instantly copied. Tulane turnover beads, Florida State turnover backpack, SMU turnover crown and chalice, etc. You can buy a replica of the 2018 model of the turnover chain from the University of Miami bookstore for $99. The forerunner of all of these awards is, of course, the game ball. I asked my friend, the lexicographer and word sleuth Ben Zimmer, to help trace the origins of game ball. Ben quickly dated game ball to a 1934 story about Wisconsin's win over Illinois in football. Excellent final score, 7-2. to two. The game ball was given to Milt Kummer, 
Wisconsin's doughty little senior guard whose savage tackle of Froshauer in the last seconds made him fumble and prevented Illinois from any chance at a late touchdown. Ben then found a 1930 story about the captain of the Burlington, Vermont high school basketball team receiving the game ball after the Seahorses beat Barton to win the state championship. It's hard to say for sure that this citation reflects the modern sense of game ball, as Merriam-Webster defines it, a ball such as a football presented to a player or coach in recognition of an outstanding contribution to a team victory, because the winning captain might have just been given literally the ball that was used in the game which was a thing that people did. Winners kept the game ball. But there is earlier evidence of the game ball being given to honor an outstanding player after Harvard beat Princeton 16-6 in football in 1912. And this definitely sounds like the game ball origin story. A recap that appeared in the San Francisco Examiner and other papers noted how the captain of the losing team traditionally would surrender the game ball to the captain of the winning team. In this case, it was Harvard's Percy Wendell. Following the usual custom, the ball would have been retained by Captain Wendell until the close of the season and then have been accorded a place in Harvard's trophy room. Captain Wendell, however, in recognition of Brickley's great work, which won the game, gave him the ball. This was so newsworthy that the headline on the story was Hero Brickley Gets Princeton Game Ball. Brickley is Charles Brickley, the greatest kicker of his time. I'd actually heard of him. Against Princeton, in addition to rushing for 106 yards, Brickley drop-kicked three field goals, including one from 47. The game was a kicking game in which the Princeton team was completely outclassed, the Harvard Crimson reported. Indeed, Harvard punted 17 times, including one that went 67 yards. Old-timey footballs were pretty soft. Charles Brickley would go on to coach in college for a few years. He also coached the New York Brickley Giants of the early NFL. He then would be convicted of stock fraud in 1928, so not a lunchpail guy in his brokerage career. Charles Brickley died in 1949. No word on whether he was buried with his game ball. Josh, what's your shaking space station? So we referenced him a little bit earlier in our Fox conversation, Pat Summerall came over to Fox from CBS uh, along with John Madden when they got the rights to show NFC games in 1993. Summerall, who died in 2013, was the classic stentorian voice of the league for decades. Um, Brian Curtis and his uh, oral history quotes this guy, Richie Zions, who was a producer at CBS, who then became a producer at Fox, who talks about Pat Summerall reading promos on CBS um, and how that kind of became a thing. Let's listen to a clip of Summerall reading promos for the CBS Sunday Night lineup. Tonight on CBS, don't forget 60 Minutes begins its 20th year. You think Baby M has caused the first way you hear about Baby's M in here. 60 Minutes was there before they were born. Followed by the season's premiere of Murder, she wrote. Starring Angela Lansbury in the CBS Sunday movie, Mickey and Bob. Starring Dudley Moore and Amy Irving. All tonight on CBS. Dudley Moore and Amy Irving. Wow. In the same TV movie. Wow. Star, star power. Um, did you guys remember the pause in Murder, She Wrote? Apparently, that's like a famous pause that Summerall really got into that comma. He was like super huge fan of that comma. Uh, but I didn't actually remember that. 
I only remember that my mother used to call the show murder. She said, <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I did not remember that. And my mom, I don't think even watched a murder. She wrote, no, Vincent, it's murder. Dot, 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 dot. She wrote. Okay. She wrote. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote. I do remember though, Pat Summerall reading the promos on Fox when he moved over. Um, if you do an autocomplete search for Pat Summerall's name, if you type in Pat Summerall and then the letter H, what comes up is Pat Summerall Height, Pat Summerall Hall of Fame, Pat Summerall House, and finally, Pat Summerall House of Buggin. So Pat Summerall reading the promo for House of Buggin, that I definitely remember, and that I remember being a thing that would be talked about in the sports press. I found a couple of clips, um, January 17th, 1995, Terry Armour in the Chicago Tribune. Don't you get a kick out of Fox TV's Pat Summerall promoting the TV show House of Buggin. Uh, Richard Sandomir in the Times a month later. Um, Fox has had an easy time. By its measurements, the football strategy has worked. By roping in new VHF stations, improving the value of its existing stations, enhancing its affiliate network, and expanding the network's reach from 93% to 98% of TV homes. All this, plus Pat Summerall saying, tonight, watch House of Buggin. Uh, House of Buggin was a sketch comedy show starring John Leguizamo. It was uh, Latino-themed, all-Latino cast. It was on for uh, less than one full season, also featured the uh, fantastic actor Luis Guzman. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of the House of Buggin' theme song. <laughs> I play you the, fa- uh, the, the House of Buggin' theme song, Vincent and Stefan, because the internet just does has done so many great things. It's fostered moon conspiracy theories. Um, it's helped bring uh, so much to the masses. The one thing that it has not done is it has not provided us with a clip of Pat Summerall reading the House of Buggin promo. Really? And so this is a call to all the listeners out there, all the Fox producers. Pat Summerall died in 2013. Maybe the Pat Summerall estate could help us out. Is there anyone who can provide for us? The Museum of Television and Broadcasting, <laughs> if you're listening. Rather than trying to find this and report this out for myself, I'm going to call on the hive mind. Does anyone have a clip of Pat Summerall reading the House of Buggin promo? If so, we'll play it on the show. You'll get much acclaim. Uh, I would really like to hear that. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Tonight... Watch Murder, She Wrote. Uh, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Vincent Cunningham of The New Yorker, thank you so very much for being on the show this week. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Stefan Fatsis, you're the best. Oh, no, you're the best. I'm Josh Levine. I can tell you that much. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.